pleasure to be back here. I was going to open today with a funny story that I heard, but um, after just wrestling in this for the past few days, uh, I just don't think that that's appropriate. Uh, let us let us pray. Father, we are treading in very deep waters today, Lord, and I pray that you would fill in all the gaps of all of my weaknesses, Father, and that every single word I say would not be me, but you would speak it, Father, and that everything that we do and think today would be for your glory and your glory alone. Father, I pray that hearts would be changed and drawn to you, and that your son would be lifted up today. In your name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of John, chapter 14. Uh, this, this is where we're at in John 14. Jesus is within hours of being arrested, betrayed, and crucified. And so it's beginning the feast of Passover. Jesus gets all the disciples together. And he knows what's about to happen. And he, he gets everyone together in John chapter 13. This is called the upper room discourse because it's the last time all these guys are together. They're together in the upper room about to celebrate Passover. And Jesus knows the time is getting close and he feels troubled in his soul. And in John 13, 27, he sends out Judas. He says, go do what you're going to do. Right before he says this, he says, my heart is troubling me. I'm going to be betrayed today. And so Peter leans over to John, who's writing this, and says, hey, who, ask him who's going to betray him. And so Jesus says, I, whoever I dip this bread into the cup and hand it to, that's going to be the one who betrays me. And so Jesus takes the bread, dips it into the cup, hands it to Judas, and he says, go do what you're going to do. And so Judas gets up to leave, and Judas is going to retrieve the guards of the, the Pharisees, basically, to come and to arrest Jesus to crucify him. And so when Judas gets up to go, it is crunch time, and Jesus knows that he has as much time as it takes Judas to go and get the guards and to come back and arrest him before he's never going to be able to talk to the disciples again until after he resurrects and comes back to see them. So this is the last hour of the last portion of Jesus's life, and he's got his 11 people together that he's getting ready to give final instructions to before he's arrested and crucified wrongly. That's it. This is what you're working with. This is like two-minute drill, marching up the field, Hail Mary, we got to win. And the crazy thing is, like the disciples still are not fully tracking with what Jesus has spent the last three years trying to get them to understand. And so this brings us to John chapter 14, verses 18 through 24. Start in verse 18. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And this is what the entire sermon is built on, is this question right here. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father that is sent. Now, at first glance, I admit this may not be something that you're just dying to know, right? Judas asked Jesus, he says, hey, but uh, like, uh, how come you're going to manifest yourself to us and, and not the whole world? And you just kind of breeze over that and keep reading because after all, chapter 15 is way more relevant. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, me and you. That's Christianity 101, chicken noodle soup for the soul. Abide in Christ. And we just casually gloss over this question here. And I think uh, if we can just define the word manifest a little bit more clearly, maybe this will punch you in the soul as I believe it was intended to. The Greek word for manifest literally translates to this phrase, to make holy clear. W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. So Judas is asking Jesus, how come you're going to make yourself holy clear to us, but not to the rest of the world? It's what Judas is asking, it's a tough question. It's very important, before we go any further, that we understand that manifest is not purely talking about Jesus making himself clear to the disciples. If you flip forward in this same conversation, John 13 to 17, if you flip forward to John 17, you don't have to, you would find that Jesus says in John 17, verses 5 through 8, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Read down to verse 9 and 10 of the same chapter, and he says, I am praying for them. Who is them? It's the people that God gave Jesus. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For yours are they. All mine are yours, and all of yours are mine. It's basically what Jesus is saying here is that every person that belongs to Christ was given to him by God the Father, and all of the people that belong to Christ are the ones that Jesus will manifest himself to. So fancy theological word, this means that the manifestation of Christ is effectual, which is just a really fancy way of saying that when Jesus talks about manifestation, it means that every person that he manifests himself to will have an effect. And the effect of his manifestation is that they submit to his lordship, and because of them submitting to his lordship, their soul is saved. And so if you restate the question that Judas is asking, this is what Judas is asking. There are two possibilities as to what Judas could have really been trying to ask. Now the first possibility, and I think this is significantly less likely, the first possibility would go something like this. Jesus is talking about manifestation, and because Jesus is talking about manifestation, Judas, who is a Jew, is asking Jesus, well, how come you're going to show yourself is like this awesome Messiah to us, but yet choose not to go on a global conquest and insert your Messiah ship everywhere? That'd be the Jewish way of thinking about this. They're expecting a big, political, liberating Messiah. He's going to restore the Holy Land. He's going to get us out of oppression of all these Romans. It's possible that Judas as a Jew could have been asking Jesus this question. Well, how come you're going to show yourself as the Messiah to us? 
but yet choose not to conquer the world? That's a good question. A second option, and this is what I really think Judas is asking, and this is way more relevant for us Gentiles. I think that is this. Jesus, if you're God, and before Abraham was, you are. And if I've seen you heal the blind and raise the dead, cast out demons, perform all these miracles, if you really are God and you really have this much power, how come you're going to save us but not save the whole world? How come you're going to choose us to be saved? Why is it that I was so gracious to be born in Knoxville and raised in a Christian household with Christian parents and Christian morals and be taught the truth from a young age? How come you're allowing that to happen to me, but to my Hindu friend down the street who's never heard the gospel? Why does he have to be born into such an unfriendly circumstance and never have a chance at receiving Christ? If, if you're really God and you're really good and you really love everybody, couldn't you just do a little bit more to save the world? That's the question. And every single human being who's ever accepted the faith or thought about receiving the faith has ever wrestled with this personally. Or somebody you know who is not a believer has thrown this in your faith to sort of a gotcha. Historically, this is called the problem of evil, basically. And it's if God is all good and all powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Take it a step further into Christianity. If God is all good and all powerful, why not save everybody? There's a lot of disagreements, even among Christians, as to how much of the process of one's salvation is God and His sovereignty, and how much of it is man and His free will. And I'm not here to get into any of that jargon today, because here's the truth. Whether you're all in on one side or the other, every single Christian meets at this struggle. And it's, why couldn't you have healed my parents? Why did my spouse have to die? Or why did, and there's a million different why dids for a million different situations. And us as Christians know that ultimately the reality comes down to this one thing. It doesn't matter if they died 15 years too late or 15 years too early. If the sickness came when we're 20 or the sickness came when we're 60, if we're true Christians, we ask this one question. Did they have faith in Christ? The Bible tells us as Jesus is talking, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, broad is the way that leads to destruction, which means every Christian here on earth has to wrestle with the reality that there is going to be people that we know who pass away and are not saved by faith in Christ, and we have to not only deal with it, but explain it to the rest of the world who uses that as ammunition to justify unbelief. This is the reality. Every single Christian, whether you want to talk about theology that believes this way or theology believes this way, every single Christian intersects at this struggle. And that is, why did not God do more? The question I think that people who are really evangelistic have asked before is, why doesn't God just send one more missionary? And the people that are really empathetic when you see the autopsy and read the obituary in the paper, the question is, why didn't God send one more person to give them a gospel conversation? Why didn't God just force them into one more church service to where they could have had the opportunity to hear the good news one more time? And this resonating question of why doesn't God just do more plagues humanity 
And it's tough because regardless of how much you study and how much you try to make this go away by reading and reflecting, the truth is this question never just becomes something that isn't hard. Academically, maybe you can write a paper on this that numbs the emotional pain of it. But as soon as someone close to you that you love passes away or gets sick or just renounces their faith completely, you will find yourself once again in that sensitive state of coming to God, hands raised, on knees, God, why won't you do more? And so this is what we're going to wrestle with today. So this was verse 22. Judas asked a question to Jesus that every single person before then and since then has wondered. And this is Jesus' great response where he gives us 10 chapters of answering the deepest theological question of all time. Here it is right here. Jesus responding to Judas. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, that doesn't make sense. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Okay, wait a minute. So Judas asked Jesus, how come you've chosen not to save everybody? And Jesus responds not with answering Judas's question, but by saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, let's restate this. Judas comes to Jesus, plug in your personal scenario and say, God, why have you chosen not to save blank, insert name? And Jesus responds with this, obey my commandments, and I will love you. Do you see how this seems to be just a totally unrelated answer to one of life's deepest, toughest questions? What does obedience to Jesus' word have to do in the slightest with the deepest, most painful question that Christians are going to have to wrestle with? What does this have to do with that? And then you read down to chapter 15, and you get this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Okay, so Jesus immediately responds to Judas's question with obey. And then you read down to chapter 15, and he gives him something else other than just obey. The two things that Jesus uses to answer Judas's question, you can dilute down into two simple truths. Obey and abide. And really, these two truths are more pathways than they are truths. But the issue is that whether they're truths or whether they're pathways, obey and abide seem to have nothing to do with the question that Judas is asking. Obey and abide. Obey and abide. And then you you just read down into the rest of chapter 14 before 15 before you even get to abide. And he goes on this, this little tangent about peace. And so you have a little little thing about peace, but the, the two main things that Jesus chooses to respond to this with is obey and abide, and it doesn't make sense. And I think this is where we park the car. Jesus, remember, in this moment, is knowing that he's within hours, literal hours, of having his beard ripped out of his face, of having his back ripped open with whips, being crucified for crimes that he didn't commit. 
And Jesus, in this moment of knowing that he's about to die, in his godlike sovereignty, because he is God, knows that it is more fruitful and beneficial to choose not to give Judas ten chapters of philosophy. Jesus is in crunch time. It's the darkest hour of his life. He's about to be crucified. The disciples are about to have to go through the hardest thing they've ever faced. And Jesus thinks that it is more worth it to give them a pathway of obey and abide. It's more worth it to do that than to actually answer Judas's question word for word. And so understanding the sobriety of the hour that Jesus is in and understanding the gravity of the question that Judas is asking, what we need to answer today is why did Jesus think it was more beneficial for the disciples to give them obey and abide than to give them the answer that Judas wanted to know? That's the entire reason why we've come here today. The good news that I've brought is that I think by the end of this, you're going to see that it is infinitely more beautiful that Jesus gave them the pathway of obey and abide than it ever could have been had Jesus chosen to give us 15 chapters of the deepest ponderings of the human heart. After Jesus gives us the teaching of bind and branches and abide in John 15, you guys can go home and read this for yourselves if you'd like. He finishes the chapter of John 15 by telling the disciples that if the world hated me, the world is going to hate you. We can't undershadow this. We can't just move past it because here's the truth. Jesus knew not just that he was going to be crucified, but he's sitting here looking at Peter, who just most into John. He said, hey, John asked Jesus who's going to betray him. That same Peter that he's breaking bread with right now is ultimately going to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified right side up the same way Jesus was. Jesus is thinking about his half-brother, James. What about James? James is going to be thrown off the top of the temple and beaten to death with clubs. Okay, Bartholomew, maybe he had it better. No, Bartholomew had the skin filleted off his body because he would not renounce the faith. Every single apostle suffered a terrible, terrible death. And Jesus knows deep down that this isn't just about him being crucified, but that in the coming years of what these apostles are going to have to endure, even though they're going to experience the mountain high of Jesus coming back from the dead, They're not just going to have to go recluse and be evangelists for the rest of their lives. No, they're going to have to literally be tortured to death for professing their faith. And so Jesus is looking beyond this momentary question that Judas is asking, and he's looking into the terrible, horrible, painful deaths that this room of his closest friends are going to have to suffer because they profess faith in him. So Jesus didn't want to get into, I think, 15 chapters of the deepest philosophy. Because when Bartholomew was getting the skin ripped off of his body, how much value do you think 15 chapters of philosophy would have been for? As Peter's getting crucified upside down, do you think the source of his joy would have been, hey, I really remember that time Jesus gave me 15 pages of the deepest philosophy I've ever pondered. Nope. And so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, is looking beyond 
just the momentary hurt of this looming question and looking into the darkest day and the darkest hour of his closest friends. And this, obey and abide, is the pathway that he's given to his best friends. This is the most important part of this entire sermon. If Jesus would have taken 10 chapters to answer Judas's question and resolved that one problem, give it three weeks, and these disciples would have discovered another problem. This is what it means to be human. You have one question that you think is the last thing separating you from faith in Christ. And if I could just get an answer for this one thing, or if I could just get victory over this one problem, if I can just get relief from this one issue, then I will be able to follow Christ the way that I've always wanted to follow Christ. Friend, here's the news. As soon as that one thing goes away that you think is keeping you from Christ, it's going to be replaced by something else. And so let's assume for a moment that Jesus spends the rest of his time answering Judas and that the rest of chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 is Jesus giving Judas the answer to life's deepest question. All of us here today would have found another question, would have found another issue, would have found another thing to replace that question and say, you know what, if this one thing could be answered, I'd finally be able to follow Christ. There are no amount of problems, pains, and questions that Jesus can solve that is going to turn you into the Christian that you think you could be. Jesus chose not to just answer this one question, because if he had of, it would have just been replaced by another question. What does he do instead? He gives them not an answer to one question, but a pathway to deal with every question, trial, pain, and difficulty. So instead of answering, why doesn't God save everybody? Here's your pathway. Whenever you find yourself at 2 a.m. wondering why God hasn't saved your father, think of this thing. Obey and abide and have and so I'm asking you, what do you think is more fruitful? For Jesus to answer one question? For Jesus to give a man a fish? Or for Jesus to teach a man to fish? And to answer every question, every trial, every problem. Whether a question or an answer to one question or a pathway to preserve your soul through the deepest, darkest, hardest things that life could throw at you, what would you rather have? Well, the pathway, of course. Because instead of just one fish, one answer, one thought, you have a pathway that preserves your soul through loss, through pain, through financial trouble, through sickness, through doubts, through questions. Obey the commandments of Christ and abide in Him. This is how our soul is preserved. When Judas is hanging on the cross upside down and it's not possible for him to tithe anymore and it's not possible to wash anybody else's feet and it's not possible to go out and to fulfill the commands that Christ has commanded him to obey. What is his option? Just obey and abide and live and rest in the goodness of Christ. Obeying the commandments of Christ and abiding in the goodness of Christ will carry you farther than any answer to a question ever could because obey satisfies action and abide satisfies being. That's what it means to be human. 
action and being. These are the two categories of us on the deepest level. And Jesus gave us a pathway that handles both. So ultimately, what we have is a pathway given to the church to preserve us, not just through questions and doubts, but through difficulty, trials, and hardships. Here's how I want us to think about this. Philosophy, deep thinking, books, reflection, that doesn't really do anything when the physical hurt of life really ramps up. And what I mean by that is this. How do you think the families on September 12th, 2001, would have felt if rather than being comforted in their affliction, would have been given the logical answer to the question that they're facing, and that is, why, God, did you allow my family member to be in the tower? How do you think a logical answer and analysis and synopsis from the greatest textbook would have felt to their soul when they're weeping and wondering, God, why would you allow my loved one to die in this horrible act of terror? And you come to them and say, actually, you're talking about a deep, burning pain because in that moment of physical loss, logical answers hold no water. And when you're up at 3 a.m. and you're in college and you're in that young angsty phase and you're wrestling with the faith and you're two inches from renouncing it all and embracing atheism, how far do you think white-knuckle false piety of feeding the hungry and washing the feet of your Christian friends would get you? How comforting to your soul do you think blind obedience would be to the restless mind at 3 a.m. who's two inches from announcing his faith or renouncing his faith and embracing atheism. It would be of no value to just go out and have blind obedience when you're this close to saying, I don't believe. And it would be of no value to have the deepest, most lofty answer five minutes after you've just endured the hardest tragedy of your life. And Jesus knew that the human heart is never going to be satisfied with just abiding or just obeying. Bring the two together in harmony, what do you have? You have the ultimate antidote for the condition of human suffering. Because whether it's the family that lost a loved one in 9-11, or whether it's the college student that has intellectual battles at 3 a.m., the pathway of abiding and obeying has rest and answers for both. Obey refreshes us. When to just simply abide does not feel like enough. And abiding refreshes us when simply obeying does not feel like it. And so let's spend enough time up here in the deep. Let's bring this down, make this practical. What does it look like for a Christian to obey? Jesus actually deals with this in, in John 13 and 14, where we are today. The hallmark of Christian obedience is actually really simple. Loving your brother. Jesus pushes the disciples in this. He says, hey, do you see how I'm washing Peter's feet right now? Do what I am doing because I'm telling you to do it. Just do it. 
The phrase of just do it, that you're in the plane of obedience when Jesus is talking about just go and get it done. What does it look like for Christians to obey? It looks like the chief way that Christians can obey Christ is by loving others well. There's lots of other ways that Christians can love each other well. But for the sake of this sermon, if you're wondering, well, how can I work on my obedience to Christ? What's the most, what's the simplest way I can get in the game of working on my obedience? Love each other well. And the next question is, well, then how do I abide? And abide is probably something that is more of a discipline that is really simple, and that is this. When you pray, and when you deeply meditate on the written words of God, and you rest in the goodness of how he has saved your soul and who he is and what he has done and his work on the cross. When you sit, pray, read, and think, that is abiding in Christ. So if you want to know how to obey, or how to obey, here it is, really simple. Love Christians well. If you want to know how to abide, here it is, really simple. Meditate and live and feast in the written word of God and just think about who he is and what he has done. And here's the interesting thing. Every single human being is going to be better at one of these and worse at the other. And you actually see this represented within Christian denominations. This is what's interesting. Every single textbook you've ever read was probably written by a guy who's reformed. <laughs> and every single Christian charity is probably associated with somebody somewhere along the way who was Methodist. It's just funny the way that this all shakes out. Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, these guys are great thinkers. They're great meditators. They abide like nobody you've ever seen. Independent, fundamental, Bible-fearing, devil-fighting, foaming-at-the-mouth Baptists. These guys get it done better than anybody you've ever seen. We don't eat it. We don't drink it. We don't watch it. We don't wear it. Abide and obey. And you're naturally going to gravitate to whichever one of these you're better at because that's where you're comfortable. And so the challenge is this. However God has wired you, whether you're better at abiding or whether you're better at obeying, if you focus on rounding out your character with the other side of this equation, let's just say you're better at obeying, and you struggle to think deeply and to meditate on the things of God, what is going to be the most helpful pathway for your soul when it's hurting and when the stamina bar is just draining at lightning speed? Working on abiding. And if you're really good at abiding, Abiding and you're terrible at obeying, what's going to be the ultimate rest for your soul as the stamina bar starts to drain? Probably learning how to obey. And this is a real simple way that I've packaged this for us to remember it. If you obey all the time and that's all you do, you'll grind away. And if you abide all the time and that's all you do, you'll waste away. So if you're all obey, you'll grind the dust. And if you're all abide, you'll waste the dust. And so how do we balance struggles that we wrestle with mentally and emotionally? Obey and abide. How do we balance struggles that we wrestle with physically? Obey and abide. How do we wrestle with struggles that we deal with financially? Obey and abide. How do we wrestle with struggles that we deal with when it's past hurt, future hurt, future fears, past worries, regardless of what it is? Whether there's World War III brewing across the ocean or whether there's family turmoil brewing in your living room. We have a pathway. Obey and divide. So as we close, here's three simple things you can take with you. 
for my high school students, I call this the to-go box. It's good because you can microwave it even later. This is probably one of the most relevant things to the Christian life, especially in the, the, the Bible Belt where we live, where we have lots of people that give Jesus lip service, but yet their heart reflects no affection for him. This first thing is very relevant for us, and that is this. Obey and abide. When you're down, when the capacity of your soul is worn because you have somebody that you love that you have been working on and reaching towards for years and years and years and years, and they still, for whatever reason, have not accepted Christ. Don't quit pursuing their soul. Abide tells me that I trust God more than I doubt this person's will. And obey tells me that I trust God so much I'm going to keep praying for them. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel with them. I'm going to keep going the extra mile for them because Jesus has told me to obey and abide. If I have a loved one that for 50 years, every single time when presented with the gospel, has given me an emphatic, no, I do not stop pursuing because I abide in the goodness of Christ and I obey in His commandments to go make disciples of all nations. Obey and abide is that fuel that gets me up out of bed to pray for my family member that has rejected Christ for 60 years. And every single Christian in the Bible Belt that has one of those family members, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Don't stop pursuing the lost that you know. Obey and abide. The second thing to take with you is this. In those moments when you feel like God is distant, life is closing in, and you open your Bible, and you pray, and you don't feel anything, obey and abide. One of the deepest valleys for us to walk in as Christians are these seasons where we open the Word, we get down on our knees, and it feels like we're praying to a bale of hay. It's static in my brain, it's static in my soul. But if you really obey and abide, then you're convicted on this truth, and that is that God is God, whether I feel Him or whether I don't feel Him. And so obey and abide is the pathway that carries us through the seasons where I don't feel anything, and it's the pathway that carries us through the seasons where I feel spiritual just from going to Burger King. That's the chasm of Christianity that you're going to walk through. You're going to walk through the highest highs, and you're going to walk through the lowest lows, and obey and abide says God is greater than both of those things. Here's the third thing, and this is where we're going to end the, land the plane here. Learn to simply obey and abide as a response to when things are difficult. <laughs> I, I just find it so funny. And it, it seems that the muscle memory response for Christians now is that whenever something bad happens, first place we go, Facebook, make it public, make it as stinky as you possibly can. Every emoji you can think of, every hashtag you can think of, just give them the metaphorical finger online, right? That's how we deal with things. Or, God forbid, download Yelp, create an account just to leave a bad review. <laughs> I think that one of the most radical concepts that a Christian can adopt is this. Whether it's hurt or offense from another person, whether it's deep, dark depression and worries from within, 
or whether it's just circumstantial weight that seems to be getting everybody down, if we can make our muscle memory response to be obey the things that Christ has commanded us and abide in the goodness of who he is, we will not only see the preservation of our soul, but I think we will see the flourishing of our soul. I'm going to pray us out. It's been a pleasure meeting with you all this morning. Father, thank you for this time that we could come into your house today, worship together, and dig into your word. I thank you for who you are and all that you've done through your work on the cross. Father, before we close, I just offer this one last thing. If there is any person in this room who is one of those that has been prayed for year after year and has not come to believe that you are Savior and Lord, God, I pray that you would smite their heart and draw them to repentance, Father. I pray that the work of the gospel would go forth and that you would be glorified. If there is any person in this room who is yet to believe in you and to have their soul saved in the work of you, Father, I pray that the gospel would convict and bring them to ruin so that they could come to the throne of repentance. And Father, for those of us that are walking with you, dealing with the difficulties of life. I pray that above all things, we would remember to just obey your commandments and abide in the goodness of who you are. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Be with us in your name. Amen.